You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday, the 23rd of February. And on this week's episode, we're going to talk about why children get a week off school at this time of the year, why Turkey has softened its stance on Sweden's NATO application, what progress the government is making on work permit reform, and with defence high on the national agenda, we'll also take a closer look at the volunteers who bolster Sweden's armed forces. And finally, to mark the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we have an interview with the Ukrainian ambassador about how the past 12 months have reshaped Swedish-Ukrainian relations. I'm Paula Mahoney, and with several of our regulars off this week, I'm joined today in Stockholm by Lucas Christodoulou and in Malmö by Becky Waterton. And this is your first time on the podcast, Lucas, and it's great to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. And what can you tell listeners about yourself? Who are you? Well, I'm originally from London. I moved to Sweden long time ago, like 16 years ago. And listeners and readers of the local may also know me because for a lot of that time I worked at Radio Sweden, which is the English language program from Swedish Public Radio. And now I've retrained as a teacher. And as we're going to hear later on, I've uh, joined the Home Guard. And um, yeah, it's great to be here and uh, continue giving news in English about Sweden. Fantastic. Yeah. Have you missed being in a studio? Oh, yes, actually. There's something magical about recording. And yeah, in a, being in a classroom is a little bit like delivering a tiny podcast for small people who keep on heckling <laughs> you. But this is definitely great. Excellent. Yeah, and we'll hear lots more from you throughout the podcast. Uh, Becky, all good with you? Yeah, I've not been on the podcast for a few weeks, actually. No, but, you um, haven't. No, it's nice to be back. So next week in Stockholm, we've got um, Sportlov coming up and I'm going to take some time off towards the end of the week, which I'm looking forward to. And that's after we've recorded the podcast, though. And I know it's Sportlov in Skåne this week where you are, Becky, although your daughter's not off school age because she's not really affected. Well, she is off school, but that's because she's ill. Because it's Vabruari, oh the uh, month of oh the year dear. where all of the children are sick. So despite not being on Sportlov, she is still at home. But I am not at home, which is nice for me because I can work. <laughs> But can you tell us a bit about this sport love tradition? What is it and, and where does it come from? Yeah, so it was originally created during World War II as a response to Sweden's energy crisis. So there was this energy commission run by the government called Bränslekommissionen, literally fuel commission, I guess, which uh, said in 1940 that Sweden could save fuel by not having to heat up the country's schools for a week during February, one of the coldest months of the year. And in the start, it was actually named Koks Love after the, the fuel coke, which is very high carbon. Right. 
Uh, but then it was changed through sport law of literally sport holiday or sport permission to match kind of the winter sports activities on offer for the children who are on vacation. Okay, so that was during during wartime when things were tough, obviously. But why did why did Sweden continue with sport law after the Second World War? Um, well, in the 1950s, the country's public health services, so the Folkhälsomyndigheten, uh, which we all know and love after after two years of the pandemic, realised that February, as I mentioned, February. Uh, is a peak mm. month for Swedish children getting sick. And and if they kind of kept the kids out of school for a week, they could reduce the spreading of these illnesses. So they decided to keep the holiday. So, I mean, Sport Love is a holiday designed to reduce the spread of infection and save energy amid a fuel crisis. Does anyone else think this situation sounds vaguely familiar? Or is it just me? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, should we move on to the news now? And there was a collective sigh of relief from government offices this week after Turkey signalled that it was ready to reopen talks on Sweden joining NATO. You may recall that Turkey put all discussions on hold after the Quran burning episode outside its embassy. But this week, the country has changed its tune. Do we know why, Lucas? We don't know why. So what we've got to do is look at the signs and draw our own conclusions. So what I can do is tell you some of the context and then based on how you think things are working under the surface you've got to draw your own conclusions Mm. for example if you think this whole game of chicken is really about turkey's president erdogan wanting to get something out of nato for example f-16 fighters from the usa well he just met secretary of state blinken they happen to talk about f-16s oh the talks have been restarted but of course officially these things are completely separate yeah. and they have nothing to do with each other. Likewise, the talks were paused after the Danish-Swedish far-right extremist burned the Quran in front of the Turkish embassy. Well, now all burnings of Qurans in front of Turkish or, I think, uh, Iraqi embassy, they've all been stopped by the Swedish police who says that this is a security risk. Of course, Officially, that has nothing to do with NATO. And of course, officially, Turkey isn't saying, oh, look, the Swedish police have done this. But once again, if you think that the pause was because of the Quran burnings, you can draw your own conclusions. So a lot of what's going on right now with regards to Sweden is what we say here, tist diplomatie, silent diplomacy. They don't want to talk about it very openly because it's delicate and they don't want to risk offending their Turkish or maybe American counterparts. So they're hoping for the best. Okay, and how has the Swedish government reacted to these talks being reopened soon? Extremely positively. This is really what the moderate party-led government wants. And we've got Tobias Billström, foreign minister, Ulf Kristersson, uh, prime minister, both from that party. They've long wanted to go into NATO. They want this to get going as, as soon as possible. They've said it's great. And they're looking forward to meetings in March. And also in March, Billström is going to be in Turkey for meetings about uh, disaster relief because of the Turkish earthquake. So there's going to be that meeting anyway. It would have been very awkward if Turkey was still saying definitely no to Sweden. So we've got a lot more positive energy and momentum suddenly. Mm. And Sweden was very quick to offer help, wasn't it, after after the earthquake and suggested holding this conference to collect aid for Turkey? Absolutely. And and in general, I could say there's been an outpouring of compassion from countries that have had difficult relationships with Turkey, uh, Greece and Cyprus as well, for example. 
if I can just shift the focus to something that looks worse for Sweden's uh, NATO bid, however, if we look at what Finland is saying, Finland's president was in meetings with Ulf Christensen recently and with the other Nordic leaders. So Finnish President Nienister, what he was saying to Ulf Christensen's face is that Finland is going to go ahead and join whether Sweden makes it or not, essentially. And I've got to say that from my understanding, the fact that a, a Finnish conservative president is saying that to his Swedish conservative friend means that Finland, either they think that Sweden's chances of being accepted by Turkey are very bad, or just that, for internal domestic Finnish political reasons, the Finnish leadership has to keep saying to the Finnish people, we've got this huge border with Russia, we're going to go in as soon as we can, and we're not going to wait for Sweden, even mm. though we'd love to do it with Sweden. Okay, thanks for that, Lucas. So on to work permits now. Becky, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you interviewed the Migration Minister, Maria malmö Stenegard about work permits. And there have been some developments on that front since last week's episode. What can you tell us? Yeah, so the Migration Minister, Maria malmö Stenegard, whose name you all know by now, if you've been listening for long enough, as well as the Employment Minister, Johan Persson, and Sweden Democrat Migration Spokesperson, Ludwig Asplind, held a press conference last week after we recorded the podcast, announcing a new supplementary directive, which they said was kind of aimed at limiting low-skilled labour migration to Sweden while promoting high-skilled labour. One interesting thing about this new directive is that it kind of appears like they are delaying it. They're delaying the introduction of the salary threshold because it says that the inquiry has been tasked with finding this salary limit, kind of determining how much this limit should be set at. And the inquiry has a deadline of January 2024. Do we know when it's going to take effect and how people who already have work permits will be affected? It's kind of difficult to say because the inquiry isn't the final stage of the legislative process. The only thing we know is that the inquiry has a deadline of January 1st, 2024. But interestingly, we asked Maria Malmö-Stenegård at the press conference how it will affect people that already have work permits. And she said that people who are renewing a work permit will be given a transitional period once the salary requirement comes into effect. Okay. Uh, so they'll basically, first-time applicants will need to fulfil the requirements in place at the point at which they apply. But for people renewing their work permit, they'll be given kind of a 12-month window where the original rules will apply even though the kind of salary requirements originally come into effect. So for people who are renewing their work permits, they may not need to fulfil the salary threshold requirement until January 1st, 2025 at the earliest, because this is a 12 months after this directive is due to be finished or this, this inquiry is due to be finished. You know, the way you explained it, Becky, with, with the sort of backpedalling on the wage requirement, it makes me think well, there's going to be a bit of a political split here because uh, the moderates and the liberals and so on, they really want a business to be able to pick and choose cheaper workers. And it's only the Sweden Democrats who are like, no, nationalism and protection of Swedish workers above all. And if, But if they backpedal too much, that could be the sort of thing the Sweden Democrats would be really pissed off at. And it's the sort of thing that a cheeky left party or even social democrats could side with the Sweden Democrats on if they want to bring the government down in a few more months. I think that's exactly what's happened. I, I've seen reports on SVT that the Liberals and the Sweden Democrats have been arguing over the Liberals obviously want to exempt some professions. The Sweden Democrats kind of want to cut immigration at any cost. So I wouldn't be surprised if the whole background to this is kind of a feud between the, the Liberals and the Sweden Democrats. But it's hard to know for sure. 
Obviously, no one's going to say that. But not just the Liberals, I'm thinking, because in general, Nairing's Leave It are not going to want these restrictions and the moderates are very sensitive to their needs. I did think as well, in the press conference when they were announcing this supplementary directive, I thought it was really interesting that Johan Persson was the one announcing like, oh, there might be some exemptions, you know, maybe you'll be allowed to come here if you've got a certain job. And then Ludwig Aspling, the, the Sweden Democrat migration spokesperson, he was the one saying like, oh yeah, and you know, we'll be we'll be getting rid of all personal assistance. You won't be able to get a, a work permit if you're a personal assistant. I was like, okay, I can see the very clear like ideological party lines here. Like, Johan, you get that bit about letting mm. all the immigrants in and Ludwig, you can have that bit about keeping them all out. Very clear choreography, yeah. Have there been any other um, developments on this front in the last few days? Yeah, so interestingly, there was something that came out about applicants for both work permits and residence permits. This is an issue that's particularly been affecting foreign students and foreign researchers. So at the moment, a law came in in November 2022, which said that anyone applying for a work permit or residence permit in Sweden has to physically go to a Swedish consulate or embassy to show their passport in person. And this obviously means that some people have had to travel kind of two different countries completely across their country just to show their passport, which the government is not very happy about because it means that people maybe don't want to come to Sweden or they'll apply somewhere else, is their argument. They're basically thinking of how to solve this issue. And one solution which Maria Malmö-Sainagård suggested is that the migration agency could send out like mobile teams to foreign countries. They said that they would maybe send out these teams to to some areas in the US or Canada where lots of applicants come from. So you can kind of go to this migration agency team who would then look at your passport and say, okay, cool. But important to note that this will only apply to people that come from countries that do not need a visa to enter Sweden. Because if you need a visa to enter Sweden, you need to give fingerprints and a photograph at an embassy. So it kind of, it wouldn't make a difference for that group anyway. They'd still have to go to an embassy. You wrote an article about this, right? So if people want to find out more, they can go to the site and we'll stick a link in the show notes. Exactly. We've got a big explainer up on the site. Yeah. And the same applies to the press conference. We've got an article about everything that, all the news that emerged from there. Yeah, exactly. Before we move on, we just wanted to add something that developed after the recording. It's now late Friday afternoon and Richard has just spoken to a government press spokesman who says the government now plans to raise the minimum salary threshold for work permits in two stages. First, there will be a smaller rise, which is planned for this year. And that will be followed by an increase close to the median salary in 2024 or later. Now Richard's writing up the article as we speak and we will put it in the show notes so you can get the whole story. Now back to the podcast. We're going to talk now about Sweden's defence capabilities with a focus on the Home Guard for which Lucas is a volunteer, as you mentioned earlier. Can you tell us, Lucas, first what the Home Guard is and what its role is within the armed forces? Yes, the Home Guard is a reserve capability mostly to be activated for Sweden's defence. So, for example, right now you've got about 20,000 people working full time all the time in Sweden's defence forces. 
And then right now you've got about 23,000 people who are part-timers who've uh, signed a contract that says if the government raises the level and says it's go time, then those uh, 23,000 people will pull on our uniforms that we've got at home and will be uh, ready to go in about six hours. And then that means that Sweden can immediately effectively double its capability very fast. Now, most of the time Sweden isn't going to have that kind of situation. So the Home Guard has also been helping out in things like forest fires or hunts for people who have gone missing or bringing food uh, to to people in uh, areas that have been hit by uh, flooding, for example. And so it's for all of those different reasons uh, that uh, I think the Home Guard is is super useful, whether there's peace or war. And when did you join and why did you decide to join? Yes, it's a bit interesting because really my journey towards it started sometime around the time when we had all these forest fires and there was lots of images in the media of Home Guard activated out there in the forests, uh, hosing down the forests and so on. And then uh, I started the application process. Then I got a pause because of Corona and there wasn't any training going on. So when I finally did my training after Corona, the main thing on everybody's minds wasn't forest fires, wasn't floods. It was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So everything suddenly became much sharper and more pointy and more to do with weapons, if you see what I mean, rather than the Home Guard as a general resource. And of course, this this is a capability that I am just as uh, in favour of. But it was interesting that I was sort of part of an uh, an earlier group. And then all of the other people I was training with uh, had, had basically Ukraine in mind. Yeah, that is interesting. More than 27,000 people have applied to join the Home Guard in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You touched on it just now, but are there any other ways in which the war in Ukraine has coloured your own experience of volunteering? Yes, definitely. I mean, previously you used to hear Swedish authorities sort of pussyfooting around the idea of who is our enemy, who are we in danger from. Now it's just like, well, it's the Russians. It's the Russians and it's the Russians. And let's face it, it was always the Russians. And now we we say it. (laughs) because Putin has uh, abandoned all pretense at pretending, uh, abandoned all pretense at just threatening or or, or applying pressure. I do find it really interesting that people keep kind of saying, you know, people keep saying this lie and we've done it as well. You know, Sweden's been neutral for so long. It's like, (laughs) no, we haven't. We just haven't said we're against Russia. No one was confused during the Cold War of which side Sweden was on. Definitely. And joining the Home Guard has meant that I'm in the middle of this huge apparatus, which was created during the Cold War, so that Sweden could essentially do what Ukraine is doing right now. like get attacked with overwhelming force and yet be able to hold together and resist so that uh, in the Home Guard you're trained that essentially you you would need to start a resistance movement very quickly. You would be holed up in small groups spread out throughout the forest. The the Gripen planes would be landing on uh, roads spread out through throughout the forests and, and, and so on. And so like you say, Becky, through the Cold War, this whole system was built up And Sweden was spending enormous amounts on defence against no one in particular, of course. And so this huge system was created. And then after the Cold War, especially in the early 2000s, cost-cutting governments thought, well, we don't need to keep paying for this anymore. Chop, 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 chop. So it was cut down to the bones. And now the whole thing is sort of creaking into gear again. So me being in, in part of this, I've seen how this is working and how the creaking is working. For example, my group that got trained, it was completely new training. 
pensioners. It was a, a new group of people who'd been called out of retirement uh, or activated and told, listen, Captain, I know that you've, you're doing this other job. Can you call out some of your friends who know how to shoot and, and deliver this training? And it's happening, but it's incredibly tough because the uh, the Swedish total defence system has been stripped of capacity. Mm. So in a way, it doesn't even have the capacity to raise capacity, or it, or at least it, it's increasing, but it's happening slowly because uh, there's there's this bottleneck. So all of these thousands of people who want to, to take part, only a few at a time are able to get trained. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Is the Home Guard learning from what's worked in Ukraine? You've seen the Ukrainians successfully defend themselves for the past year. Are there lessons to be learned there? I mean, definitely. I think that uh, we're going to see more and more that every little group is going to have a drone operator attached to them. I think that people are seeing that anti-tank weapons used by small groups definitely are very effective in, in knocking out tanks and so on. The big change is simply the grim determination that so many people are showing and so many people on my course. I mean... We're not we're not young. We're not exactly um, super well trained and, and so on. But there's not very much doubt that I can see out there that people are just like, well, you know, we're going to do our best and we're going to hold out. And we know the Finns next to us are going to do our, our, our best, their best and so on. And, and in, in a way, this is a sort of feeling that, like you say, Becky was always there. That feeling is being activated in the same way that the actual stru- physical infrastructure is being activated. I think it was really interesting. Um Lucas wrote an article about the uh, the Swedish Gripen planes. Mm. And I think one of the quotes in there from a, a professor, I can't remember his name, from the Defence University, was just like, oh, yeah, the, the Gripen planes would be great for Ukraine because, you know, they were designed with Russia in mind. Like they were designed to defend against Russia. So they're perfect. Yes, exactly. And and of course, it was it was never openly said this is about Russia. But oh, in case we get attacked by land forces nearby in an overwhelming way, for example, by oh, I don't know, yeah, clearly yeah. Norway or the Danes. You can never trust the Danes. <laughs> what experiences have made the the strongest impression on you since joining? A lot of the time, I understand Sweden as a, as a country of paradoxes, and one of the things is that. Many people, we come to Sweden, we see Swedes as as these people with these very hard shells around them. And my theory in general is that Swedes have got hard shells because they're so open and they don't have this sort of, um, for example, in Britain, we've got constant banter. Banter, banter, banter. It keeps you safe. It keeps people at a bit of a distance. Swedes have got this more sort of core honesty inside the shell. Mm. And so doing the home guard training, I was inside the shell and my God, I mean, people just came together and worked together with no reservations. And I I mean, I've lived in Sweden for 16 years, but I was shocked. And I was 
pleasantly shocked and surprised at how much support I got. So there was none of this sort of stiff upper lip, keep it together. It was suddenly we came together in a group and every single person helped every single other person with anything they needed. There was none of this, well, if you can't take it, get out sort of stuff that you might see from uh, training films like an officer and a gentleman. You know, you can't stand the training, get out. No, it was was, we need everybody. So everybody's going to help everybody. And at times I absolutely couldn't make it. I really thought, what, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm, I'm collapsing. And then people literally picked me up and literally helped me. It was an astonishing experience. And some would say this is very un-Swedish, but I would say what we're seeing here is core Swedishness. That's really interesting. And uh, you wrote an article that we've got on the site and that we'll link to in the show notes. And you go through everything from some of these experiences to how people can sign up. They want to join. And even if they're not a citizen, right, there's an option there too. Yes. I mean, what I started in was the Civil Defence Association, Civil Fischfarsch Verbundet. And Sweden has got a whole lot of these voluntary defence organisations that help this part-time system of of the Home Guard, but also the civil defence. And if you're not a citizen... Well, you're not going to be allowed to carry a gun, but you can be part of the civil defence, which forms groups that still can go out and help to look for missing people or groups that have brought um, food when there was a lot of refugees that arrived in a small town, for example. So that's great. And remember, there's still the law, the civil fischvarsch plikt, that means if you're between 16 and 70 and you're in Sweden, you could get roped in to helping if there's an invasion or a serious crisis. Uh, So even if you're not a citizen, I would say it's good idea to get organized now whereas if you want to go into the home guard if you've done uh, training basic training uh, in your home country for example if if you're from a country that has conscription then that's great you can just uh, join if you've done zero training before like me then you can become a specialist with two weeks of basic training and then two weeks of uh, training in your specialism and that's if you want to be Uh, involved in things that don't have fighting as their primary function so for example i'm going to be a cook and i hope i will not kill anybody with my porridge and with my (laughs) baked beans and it's very important and they've taught me how to handle a rifle because i need to be able to protect myself but mostly i'm going to be supplying people with warm meals likewise if you're going to be a medic if you're going to be a motorcycle messenger or a dog handler that's super important dog handler stops us getting sneaked up on Um, all of these things they will only require two weeks. So I would say if you've never done any uh, military training, uh, sign up for that, do it and try and find where the local voluntary uh, military organisations are to you because they're the best people who can help you through it. That's great. Thanks for telling us all about the Home Guard, Lucas. And we're going to turn our attention now to Ukraine. This week marks the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion, an event that has had huge ramifications, first and foremost for Ukraine, which has suffered greatly and fought back with a passion and intensity that quickly put paid to Russian expectations of a swift capitulation. But the war has also had an impact far beyond Ukraine's borders, not least in Sweden, where the national consensus has shifted massively. Last January, the idea that Sweden might join NATO would have seemed outrageous. But the country is now well on its way to joining alongside Finland. And in the early stage of the conflict, Sweden agreed to send arms directly to a country at war for the first time since the Second World War. 
Now, to get a sense of how the Swedish-Ukrainian relationship has developed over the past 12 months, I sat down this week for a chat with the Ukrainian ambassador, Andriy Plakotniuk. And we started by talking about February 24th last year and what it was like to wake up to the news that all of Ukraine was under attack. Everyone should understand that it was early in the morning. All Ukrainian population was sleeping peacefully, some of them having colorful dreams like children. And all of a sudden, we were hit by missiles. When it comes to our reaction, our first reaction, definitely we understood from the very first day, both the government and parliament, Ukrainian civil society, and we diplomats as members of civil service, when it's one clear thing, that we shouldn't lose in spirit any minute to work hard, to have as prompt and as strong reaction to this illegal illegal actions by the Russian Federation as possible. So we had a clear understanding that we should be effective, fast, result-oriented. And the whole state machinery was operating with this clear goal. When it comes to government, when it comes to parliament, they should be effective, they should make decisions, they should solve the people's problem on daily basis. There were tremendously many problems, but they were solved, and we have this very good experience, for example, in the restoration of energy infrastructure. It's like a miracle. Our energy technicians, like all of our population, be it, be it military, be it civilians, be it medical social care workers, be it firefighters and police, they're doing heroic things every day. They are delivering, they are working day and night to help our country to survive during this this war of aggression. So we were all mobilized, we were all united. And these are my reflections, and we continue to be so. For example, around 90% of Ukrainian population support government president at the top of our military and political structure these days. And they support our strong European and Euro-Atlantic course. So we are united, the world is united, and we should be like this for the time while we are having this war. In the first days, a lot of international observers expected Kiev to fall very quickly and that Ukraine would capitulate. What do you have to say about Ukraine's resilience? A lot of people of U- in Ukraine say that the nation of slaves can, can, cannot conquer the nation of free people. Ukrainians have always been free people. And when I speak of Ukrainians, I I can pick up and use many, many words how to describe my, my fellow countrymen. But two words, it's freedom and dignity. And that's why we conducted on the first day and we're still conducted like warriors who have our values. And by the way, these values are shared by all the democratic world to live in a free and democratic country, and definitely will defend every square inch of our territory. Sweden's current and previous governments disagree on a lot, but both have been very pro-Ukrainian, and Sweden has delivered multiple military aid packages to Ukraine over the past year. And Prime Minister of Christensen announced in early January that Sweden's next military aid package to Ukraine will include combat vehicles, anti-tank weapons and advanced artillery systems. And the archers in particular are something Ukraine has been asking for for a while. How significant is it that it's finally happening? Firstly, I would like to, to say one thing that 
we are so happy to have a united position when it comes to all political parties represented in the Riksdag, in Swedish Riksdag. It's very important that have, we have this unity when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to solidarity, when it comes to support. Uh, we are so much grateful for all 10 packages of, of defense assistance and for those historical decisions, really historical ones by, by the Swedish parliament uh, to support Ukraine. They are m more than welcome. They will. They are so appreciated by 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 Ukrainians. When it comes to to artillery systems, you've just mentioned, we've been talking about this issue for quite some time. Now we are expecting the proposals by the armed forces on how to, to arrange the whole system of of, of deliveries of, of the archer systems. For us, it's really important to have more and more assistance on the one side from any country that supports Ukraine. And from the other side, the issue of timing is equally important. So we really need to find a quick solution when it comes to delivery foreign uh, defense equipment. We will continue our communication with the uh, Minister of Defense and uh, relevant agencies so that we can receive this artillery systems as soon as possible. Because uh, everybody knows in Ukraine that when it comes to artillery systems, the archer systems is one of the most uh, sophisticated, uh, sophisticated things uh, in this sphere. And is there any frustration that it took Sweden so long to reach this decision? We cannot be frustrated in Ukraine. We understand that we, we should work harder, we should uh, communicate more actively, we should provide more arguments in order to get as much assistance as possible, and definitely as fast as possible. So we will continue. We, we see the clear position of, of the Swedish government, of the Swedish political society, that this is an important thing that should be decided. In Kiev last week, um, Prime Minister Christensen and President Zelensky also discussed air defence, and Sweden has its own fighter jet, the Saab-made Gripen, and Christensen said he wouldn't rule out sending Gripens, but that any decision would need to be made in agreement with other Western states. Do you have any sympathy for this approach? The war has entered a very important stage when Ukraine requires more and more sophisticated uh, equipment, defence equipment, and definitely uh, on the other side requires a higher level of coordination, a higher level of contribution and at the same time a higher burden to every every country that supports Ukraine and joins this defense contact group of 54 nations. At this stage, uh, countries should take definitely consideration their national security interests, the, uh, the interests of their wartime organizations and to contribute to the best of their possibilities. In this sense, we have a very important precedent, which is called the Tank Coalition. When uh, several countries who joined, which joined the coalition, they try to, to provide as much as, as they can within this coalition, coordinating with other partners and with Ukraine. All our requests when it comes to defense equipment, defense assistance, they're well known, they are based on uh, mathematical calculations and they're based on the real urgent needs on the battlefields of our armed forces. It means that the general understanding is among all partners. When it comes to this uh, aviation coalition, it's regarded as one of, of very important uh, further steps which will help us not only to protect our civilian population, because uh, aviation is, can also be used to, to down uh, missiles and to, to intercept, intercept missiles and, and enemies' drones. At the same time, it's an important factor that will contribute significantly to our liberation efforts. So we are engaged in, in discussions with all the governments. 
we have uh, submitted this request to the Swedish government. Everybody in Ukraine now knows about the famous Gripen's uh, fighter jets. We will be working very hard with partners in order to have this coalition. And definitely we would be more than happy if Sweden decided to join this aviation coalition. In 2021, before Russia's invasion, there were around 13,000 Ukrainian-born yes. people living in Sweden, and now there are a lot more. And after the outbreak of the war, the EU activated its temporary protection directive for the first time, which made it easier for Ukrainians to seek shelter across the Union, and many of them came to Sweden. Can you talk a bit about the situation for Ukrainian refugees in Sweden. How many have come and what are their lives like here? Uh, we have different figures and, and you refer to the figures of migration agency and uh, as of today I think that the general number of Ukrainians who are enjoying hospitality here in Sweden is up to 50,000 50, because in recent media we saw the numbers of more than 40,000 so it's a two-way road. People come then they can go to the third country or return to Ukraine whenever the circumstances permit because Ukrainians uh, many of them uh, st still would like to return to their motherland at the same time what is uh, what I would like to mention here that we are definitely very much grateful for all that efforts that were implemented by the Swedish governments since this full-scale invasion started we had different numerous projects and various ideas were realized in order to make the life of ordinary Ukrainians easier we are so happy that many ordinary Swedes opened their doors and hearts to Ukrainians. This is, uh, well, the, the experience and this is the emotion that will never be forgotten by ordinary Ukrainians. Definitely Ukrainians, as we are approaching the first year of this full-scale invasion, they have their issues and which they address and we address also to all our Swedish friends here. One of them, and it's um, uh, the issue of daily allowances to... Yes to ordinary Ukrainians. We know that the legislation was passed in the 90s of the last century. We know that there is the issue when it comes to Ukrainian to have this access to Swedish language proficiency test so that they can find deployment because Ukrainians are very hardworking people. The third issue, among other issues, is definitely uh, the possibility to get uh, the mobile ID banking so that whenever they're unemployed, uh, they can use uh, uh, use this uh, important service to the best of its efficiency. The same goes, by the way, with the Swish, which uh, they now uh, are not able to use as well. So these are the issues that are actively communicated, which is important, and I'm very grateful to Swedish politicians that these discussions are now taking place at different levels, at the level of ministries, at the level of political parties represented in Swedish Riksdag, and during our conversations with uh, Swedish governmental agencies. So this are well-known fact, and I think that there will be found solutions to these issues, and the life of Ukrainians here in Sweden will, will become easier. We've just been listening to the Ukrainian ambassador to Sweden, Andriy Plakotniuk, and we'll release the full interview in the coming days for anyone who would like to hear more. But to go back to what we just heard, one thing we spoke about was the daily allowance for refugees, which has been stuck at 71 kroner since 1994. And we're seeing stories of Ukrainians relying on charity organisations because they can barely afford food. The ambassador said these concerns were being taken seriously. Are we seeing any signs that the rate will be increased, Becky? Kind of. The Red Cross have come out saying that this needs to be raised and 
I think yesterday, so that would be Wednesday when you're listening to this, the Centre Party came out and they said that, or they think that it should be raised from 71 kroner a day to 131 kroner a day. Yeah. Yeah, this would only affect people under the EU's temporary protection directive. So it wouldn't affect other refugees. It would just affect Ukrainians. Their argument is that people that are under the temporary protection directive, that they're on this kind of daily allowance for a much longer period. Yeah, the migration minister has said that she's looking at some of these things that Ukrainian groups have spoken out about, like um, Swedish for immigrants classes and all of these concerns. So Yeah, bank ID and stuff like that. So that might be included in that package, yeah. But no one specifically said we're going to raise it or specifically said we're against raising it yet. No, but as you say, it was interesting that this conversation came to the fore with the opposition centre party proposal this week. So it may be that things are starting to move. Yeah, exactly. It was interesting to hear the ambassador mention how everyone in Ukraine has now heard of Sweden's Gripen fighter jets. And Lucas, as Becky mentioned, you wrote this article about the Gripens and and their suitability for air defence in Ukraine, which we'll link to in the show notes. How likely do you think it is that Gripens will be sent to Ukraine? I think that the main obstacle is political because Sweden's Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson, he said that he doesn't want to go it alone. He only wants Sweden's Gripens to go if other modern Western jets go. And you can understand why he's saying this, because if no one else was sending these jets and only Sweden was doing it, and Sweden isn't even in NATO yet, then Sweden could be singled out by Russia and a lot of pressure could be put on. At the same time, Sweden could itself be in the forefront and signal uh, a lot of willingness because unlike all of the other modern jet systems, Sweden's Gripen is just Sweden. It's not entangled with others like the British Typhoon Eurofighter is with other Euro countries or American jets F-16, F-35 are uh, with the USA. So it's a simpler decision-making process. In theory, but at the same time, Sweden is doing this very delicate balance right now. Sweden has got security guarantees from certain NATO countries, and there's also the uh, European Common Security Policy. But at the same time, Sweden is in this middle stage. And uh, Ulf Christensen, he said he doesn't want to rule it out, but he's not going to say uh, yes uh, right now either. If you were to hazard a guess, do you think it will ever happen? I think there's a lot in favour of it happening. I think that it would be a great thing for the Swedish Gripen to be in Ukraine because, as we said earlier, this is pretty much literally the mission it was designed for, to oppose an overwhelming force of Russian-made Soviet-style planes through being dispersed, through being able to land on uh, things that are not actually specific runways. Uh, It needs less crew. It it has a faster turnaround time. It can land and, and take off much faster. On the other hand, it would take a long time to train the pilots. One of the experts at the Defence University said to me, it takes years to train pilots. Now, I take that with a pinch of salt. Think about how quickly the Ukrainians took, for example, HIMARS, and were able to just use that and, and other artillery. I'm thinking that the Ukrainians would probably push very hard and be able to uh, retrain in not years, but more like months. But however, it could be several months. This could mean that the conflict pushes forward. And so any decision made now about the Gripens would really be a decision about the future relationship and Sweden's future stance towards Ukraine. Again, I think that there's a lot that means that that would be a good decision because Sweden wants to keep on producing 
Grippens. It wants to show that they are good. It wants to have a, a reason uh, for them to exist. And right now it's only Sweden and Brazil that have uh, bought the latest kind of, of Grippen, the Grippen E. So if they showed how good they are in, in Ukraine, that would build ties with Ukraine, uh, between Ukraine and, and Sweden, and show that the plane has got uh, a use. And as I mentioned in my article, there's calls for uh, an inquiry into whether Sweden actually needs to keep the Gripen at all. So in a way, although a Gripen decision would be a future decision that would be about a general attitude, I think, again, there's a good reason to make that kind uh, of decision. Otherwise, eventually Sweden may end up going with American-made fighter jets, just like uh, Norway and Finland and Denmark uh, do. Great. Thanks for that roundup, Lucas. And that's all for today. If you like the podcast and you have a moment, please help us get the word out by leaving a review or rating it or sharing it with people you think would enjoy it. And don't miss the full interview with the Ukrainian ambassador, Andrei Plakotniuk, which we'll post in the coming days. Our panellists today were Lucas Christodoulou and Becky Waterton. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.